pro football player this week gave an interview. His name is Johnny Manziel. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right. Who knows Johnny Manziel? Johnny football. And you, you laugh when we say his name. He's a complete uh, human. Um, so Johnny Manziel, Johnny football, one of the top draft picks in 2014, drafted by the Cleveland Browns. Fantastic uh, high school football team. I could say, who's a Cleveland Browns fan in Medford? I don't know. I mean, one of the, I think it, was, it might have been the first round draft, first pick that year. I don't know if anybody can check me on that. Uh, but he was supposed to be the thing. He was going to save the Cleveland Browns. I'm sorry. Um, I mean, a complete washout. I mean, he played in the league, what, two years, a couple of games, and, and he's out of the league now. He's trying to get back into it. But he gave an interview this week on the Dan Patrick Show. And he said this. He said, listen, the Cleveland Browns should have done their research. They should have known. I'm not an X's and O's guy. I'm not the guy who's going to come in and watch film. I've never been that guy. I'm not going to come in and study a playbook. And one sports writer summarized it this way. Is he basically was saying the Cleveland Browns should have done their research and realized he was lazy. He realizes now, he says in retrospect, now he's trying to get back in the league, he says, I realize to be a pro player, you've got to study the X's and O's. You've got to know the plays. You've got to know the defenses. You've got to do your homework. You've got, to, you've got to be an athlete, but as a quarterback, you've got to be a student of the game. And as a professional player, I, I didn't do it. I was trying to play as an amateur. The role he had didn't fit who he was, and the result was he, he washed out. The Bible calls us this morning in verse 8 of Ephesians 5, right at the end of verse 8, it says this, Walk as children of light. And what he's going to say here, he's going to say, summarizing Ephesians 1, Ephesians 2, and Ephesians 3, by the work of Christ on the cross, received by faith, you have been made children of light. Now walk in that. You have a new identity, children of light, and now he's calling us in who we are, not seeking to become something, but rather to understand who we have become to walk in that, to walk in who we are. As Johnny Manziel should have been walking as a pro football player, he was walking as an amateur. And the Bible here is saying, now walk as who you have become. You are children of the Son of God. You are children of the King, heirs to the kingdom of God, receiving righteousness of Christ. Now walk as children of light. Let me just define that real quickly. We're going to spend a lot of time on that because we're assuming we know what this is coming out of the passage we looked at a couple of weeks ago. Look back at verse 5 of Ephesians chapter 5. It says this, uh, be, you may be sure of this, everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of God. He essentially is saying this, as those who walk in the light, this means we are to be defined by a walk that is in the holiness of God. It's specifically in Ephesians chapter 5, related to sexual purity and our money. So now's your chance. To act like you have to go to the bathroom and go, no, you're going to hang in. Okay, good. Holiness, walking in the light, especially in regards to sex and money. He's calling us as people who have been made righteous in the kingdom of God to walk in a manner of holiness and righteousness, especially as it relates to our uh, intimate relationships, 
as well as with our resources. So the title this morning is Walk in the Light, and I want to give you from the Scripture, hopefully, three reasons why you should walk in the light as a believer. Look at the beginning of verse 8. It says, for, fancy word for because, so I'm going to give you three becauses. I'm going to give you all the answers at the beginning, so that way you can take a nap if you need to. Walk in the light. Number one, because you love God. If you like writing stuff down, go for it. Walk in the light. We're going to look at verses 8, 9, and 10 and say, why? Because you love God. Then we're going to say, walk in the light. Why is that? Verses 11 and 12, because your shame is gone. It's all gone. And finally, in verses 13 and 14, walk in the light. Why? Because you enjoy Jesus. Okay, let's look at it. You want to look at it? Well, we're going to. Because you love God, verses 8, 9, and 10. Now, I've mentioned this movie before. It's one of my favorite movies, so uh, if you don't like the movie, it's okay. We just can't be friends. <laughs> Count of Monte Cristo. There's the bad guy. Anybody know the bad guy? Count Mondego. Boo. Count Mondego, though, is married to Mercedes. The problem with Count Mondego was he pursued everything in his life for one particular reason. He pursued everything in his life for his own pleasures and his own passions. That was the Count Mondego. Everything he did was to please himself, make himself happy. And this included his marriage. And the result was, of course, he wasn't faithful to Mercedes. He was a philanderer and a cheat, and he... As you might expect, his marriage wasn't going to make it. I'm making, giving the G-rated version. So she's leaving. She's out. Walking out of the house. Of course, they had a big fight. It's very dramatic. And he turns to her and says this. I'm summarizing. Well, Mercedes, I did enjoy our marriage some of the time. And she responded. Maybe you know the line. It was a fantastic line. She goes, I never did. With sadness her face. I did enjoy her marriage some of the time, says her arrogant husband, and she said, I, I never enjoyed it. And what is this? It, he, what he is saying is in this marriage, he was not seeking to love his wife. He was seeking to simply extract from his marriage what he seeks to extract from everything else in his world, some sort of pleasure, some sort of significance or power or influence or something. And the result was there was no expression of marriage to the one that he was supposed to have loved, his wife. So why in the world would we walk in the light? That is holiness as it relates to how we behave sexually and how we behave with our money. And it says right here, look at verse 10 of Ephesians 5. Try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. The question is this, is what is the nature of our relationship with God now? Having received righteousness through Christ by faith... Our life in God is no longer defined by darkness. Before Christ, our life would be defined by darkness. It says that. It says, uh, excuse me, at what time you were darkness. I want you to notice in verse 8, it doesn't say one time you were in darkness. What does it say? At one time you were darkness, meaning our evil and our sin and our rebellion against God defined who we are. Outside of Christ, we are darkness. We're not merely in it. We are it. But gratefully and thankfully, when we receive Christ, we are not merely in light, we are light. So a great change occurs in Christ. We are no longer identified by our sin. 
We are no longer identified by our shame or by our guilt. We are no longer identified as those separate from God. Instead, we are defined as light. We are defined as those who have received unearned, granted by grace alone, free access to God and righteousness of Christ himself. And he's simply saying, walk as those who have received that light. Walk as those who have received that righteousness. Your identity is light, so therefore walk as those who have light. What does this mean about our relationship with God? Do we have to earn his favor? No. Already have it. Do we have to try to get God to be pleased with us? No. He's already pleased with us. Well, how could God be pleased with me? Is he pleased with Jesus? That's an easy answer. Yes, he is. So if I am one with Christ through faith, is it possible for God to be displeased with me? Only if he's able to be displeased with Jesus. I see confusion on your faces, so we're gonna, I'm going off script now. Oh boy, here we go. I may lose you, but you've got to understand this. Why did Jesus get baptized? He got baptized the sinner's baptism. Everybody was going down to John the Baptist confessing their sins and being baptized. This means everyone who identified as, I need a Savior, is getting baptized. Why in the world would Jesus be baptized with a sinner's baptism? He says, because I'm with the sinners. So he receives the baptism of a sinner, saying, I identify with sinners, and I'm going to take the sinners to the cross and deal with their sin." So when the dove comes down from heaven after Jesus is baptized, what does God say? Oh, boy, you've really let me down. I figured, Jesus, you would get baptized with the good baptism of righteous people. But now you've really took the low-hanging fruit of the sinner's baptism. Boy, shameful. No, what did he say? This is my son in whom I am well pleased. So what you can understand when you read that passage in the Bible is Jesus is baptized. He's identifying with you as a sinner. He's coming out of the water, and God is now descending and saying to Christ and to us as redeemed sinners, what? This is my son in whom I am well pleased. And you say, but I haven't done anything pleasing. Don't worry about it. Jesus handled it. So we are not seeking here to walk in light to generate that God might show us favor. He can't show us any more favor than the cross. It's not possible to show us any more favor than the cross. Having received Christ, we have received God's best favor. And he is pleased. But now he's saying, son and daughter of the king, and in a co-heir with Christ of my kingdom, is there in your heart any affection for the one who has saved you? Then as a husband might do for his wife or a might, might do for her husband, say, I wonder what he likes. This isn't a very religious way to say it, but you might say it this way about God. You say, I wonder what he's into. Guys, have you ever had a holiday show up like Valentine's Day or an anniversary or something and you get down to the store and you go, I have no idea what to buy. None? None. Well, now it's embarrassing. It's just me. <laughs> What are you doing standing in the store trying to figure out what you're supposed to buy your wife? Verse 10. You're doing verse 10. You're trying to discern what is pleasing to the spousal unit. What would she like? 
And then you're looking at the person who's trying to help you, like as though this person will have more insight into your spouses. You're trying to discern what, what you, are you worried in that moment that if you buy the wrong thing, she won't love you? I mean, maybe. It depends on what you have to buy or a wrench, maybe. I don't know. Of course, maybe she likes working on cars. I'm not going to judge that. See, this is funny. We have this view of God. Oh, I've got to try and please him. Otherwise, he's going to have his big godly scowl on his face. And we don't operate in that relationship anywhere else. You're in the store trying to buy something because you really want to do something they'll enjoy. And this is what the Bible is calling us to do here. He's saying, walk in the light because that's what God is into. And maybe in your heart there's affection and love that moves you to say, what is he into? This one who has saved me, what, what kind of things does he enjoy? What does he do on the weekend? And the Bible tells us he loves for us to walk in his ways, to walk in the light because we love him. God is already pleased with us in Christ, and he, he's saying in the freedom that we already have, that God is already as pleased with us as he can be, we have the freedom to merely, as an expression of love and worship, say, I wonder what God's into. And the Bible tells us he's into his children walking in his ways. The Bible says this over in Romans 12, 1 and 2, and this passage you're familiar with, I, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable, excuse me, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. It's just another way of saying we seek to live God's ways as a way of worshiping him who would have saved ones like us. It's a way of expressing our gratitude and our joy for one who would redeem us. He explains it further in verse 2 of Romans chapter 12. Do not be conformed to this world, but instead be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. God is pleased with us, and he's saying, as his children, moved by love and worship, we can seek out in our lives specific ways that we can walk in the light as it relates to our stuff and it relates to our marriage. Holiness, then, is taking out, making a decision to worship God and saying, well, I want to do things his ways when it comes to my relationships with others related to sexuality. The Bible says the way we walk in the light of God, the way we walk in his ways in in, relationships to, in relation to sex is to merely have sex with your spouse and them only. I know it make it seem really complicated. That was a joke. It's not. It's not complicated. It's just not easy. He said, well, certainly it's easy. No, no, no. It's... He says, in relation to marital intimacy, sex is to occur in the marriage relationship and the marriage relationship alone. So as a human, we have to say, how is my heart, how, is my, how are my eyes, and how are my mind all set aside to express sexuality to my spouse and my spouse alone? And he says, walk in the light in relation to that. In terms of my stuff, do I live as though... Uh, I have earned my stuff, or do I live as though I am a manager of some things God has given me until the day I go and see him? What is God's good pleasure in relationship to my stuff? How do I worship him with my stuff? Usually the question we ask is, how much do I give God so I can keep the rest? I'm going to let you in on a secret here. I'm not a financial play, uh, planner, but I do play one on TV. You're going to lose everything. 
You're, you're going to lose it all. I mean, now, some people hold on to to the day they die, and then it's gone. It turns out. Listen, when you get to heaven, you're gonna, not going to want any of this junk anyway. But you may lose it all before you die. You still haven't lost anything. If we can look at our stuff and say, how can I decide that all of it's God's and how do I worship him with all of it? Not just the part I set aside to help with ministry. The question we have to ask ourselves in relationship to how we walk in the light is this, is not, did I do what's right? We need to ask this question about the choices we make with our stuff and in our relationship. This is the question, do I love God? And if my heart is moved by love for God, what kind of choices will I make in terms of my relationships? What kind of choices will I make in regard to what I look at? What kind of choices will I make in terms of the kinds of relationships I have with people other than my spouse? The question is not, did I hit the punch list of doing all the right things? The question the Bible asks us is, have I expressed affection for God in my relationships and with my stuff? Why in the world will we walk in light? First reason, why? Because you love God. Because you have an affection for God. Okay, second reason. Because your shame is gone. Look at verses 11, 12, uh, uh, yeah, 11 and 12 of Ephesians 5. I'm going to read them again just as a reminder. Take no part in unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. It is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret, that they is those who uh, do the works of darkness. Take no part in unfruitful works, rather expose them because of their shamefulness. A woman tells this story. She lived in England, and she had a group of friends, and they would use cocaine recreationally. I don't know if there's another way to use it. I don't know if you can use it vocationally. I can't think of a way. What I mean by this is she wouldn't define herself as a drug addict. And I can't define what a drug addict is, but I'll say it this way. This is her story. Once or twice a month, all their friends would get together, and they would hang out, and they would spend. And one of the things they did was they would use cocaine. So none of them were using cocaine during the work week. None of them were using it every day or even weekly. It's just a couple of times a month, they'd all get together and spend the weekend enjoying one another's company, playing board games, watching movies, much like what many people do on the weekends, it's just they also added cocaine. Did some research, you realize, of course, maybe cocaine use isn't a terribly healthy thing to put into your body. And not only that, she got a little bit scared the first time that she called somebody and uh, had them deliver cocaine and she wasn't with her friends. She realized, okay, I'm going down a bad road if I'm going to do this by myself. So she said, you know what, I'm done with that. I, mean, I can hang out with my friends and I have to do cocaine. So she did. But pretty soon she realized the only thing I have in common with these folks is, is drugs. That's the only thing I have in common with them. So after a while, it turns out she stopped spending time with her friends, not because she didn't like them, not because they offended her, or not because she was trying to be a goody two-shoes. She just realized that if, if I don't take cocaine, we don't have anything in common, we don't have anything to talk about. And what the Bible is saying here is something very stark, and maybe you don't see the connection, but I think it's clear, what do we have in common with darkness anymore as children of the light? All of that is changed in Christ for us. We no longer have in common shame. 
We no longer have in common the guilt that weighs down those who have done uh, all the things we have done. The shame is gone. The guilt is gone. So what do we have in common now with the darkness? See, oftentimes our shame and guilt is that which pulls us back into doing things that we know aren't right. Because we assume in our minds, well, you know, I'm not any better than this. But the fact is that shame and that guilt is gone. The things of darkness now can be in the past because we don't carry that shame and that guilt with us anymore. We can live in the light because our shame is gone. We don't carry it. Look at what the Bible says in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. You have it memorized. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. How much condemnation is there for those who are in Christ Jesus? There's none. Now, some of us have been, done some pretty awful things. You don't want to think about it, right? Some of those things were before you got saved. I know we like the testimonies where somebody gets saved and then they never do anything bad for the rest of their life. Then there's the rest of us where we saved the really horrible stuff for after. And we said, well, there's no condemnation for the sins I did before I got saved. So we get saved 37 times. There is now, therefore, no condemnation, even for Christians like us who blew it. It's got, if we cannot get out of a cycle of shame in our life, we will never get out of a cycle of sin. That shame is what the enemy uses to keep us down so we'll never stop doing what we're doing. The fix is not to stop what you're doing so that you can no longer feel shame. The fix here from the Bible is to say, I don't have shame anymore. I don't have to go there anymore. If you're waiting for your shame to go away before you stop doing what you're doing, it's never going to go away. Did I say that right? I think I said it backwards. I don't know. I'm not listening. You're like, welcome to the club. Okay, very nice. Okay. The trick to overcoming shame is not to finally be that perfect Christian. I'll tell you when you're going to be the perfect Christian. It's the day after your funeral, or maybe the day of your funeral. It's when you die. And the enemy is fantastic. You finally kick that big, ugly, gnarly sin you don't want anybody to, hear, you don't want anybody to know about. You kick it. You beat it. Now he's going to find something else to make, make you feel ashamed. If you're trying to wait till you get your act together to so, stop feeling ashamed, it won't happen. You stop feeling ashamed because Jesus got his act together for you. And so now the shame is gone, and now we have the freedom to worship God by saying, you know what, I'm not going to live that way anymore because I don't have shame anymore. And that's where victory is found. We can walk in the light because our shame is history. Look what Jesus says in John chapter 3. Beginning in verse 16. Now, of course, you know John 3.16, but we're going to read further than that. God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. That's good news. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned as long as they get their act together and have a really good testimony. No, it's not what it says. But somehow we've convinced ourselves of this. Whoever believes in him is how condemned? Not. 
The light has come into the world, but the people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. There's no condemnation. Our shame is gone. And because our shame is gone, it gives us the freedom then to worship God by saying, I'm not going back to that place of shame any longer. I don't have to. I don't need to. My shame is history. I can walk in the light with the light of the world because I have no shame to carry. Now, we do experience temptation. Temptation is serious business. Being tempted and falling into sin and struggling with sin is one thing, but seeking to be identified with our sin is a whole other thing. We aren't darkness anymore. Instead, we are light, walking with the light of the world, and he gives us the opportunity to face temptation and overcome it. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. Therefore, let anyone that he... Sorry, I have an English Bible, and English isn't my first language. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. It's written to Christians. All of us goody two-shoes, I think we got our act together. Therefore, this warning is for you. You're like, you came here this morning. Good, I'm glad this sermon is for all those naughty folks. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee idolatry. What are the odds you're going to be tempted today? 100%. And God is perfectly in charge of what is coming your way. And he's saying, I will provide for you in every single case the opportunity to hit the eject button and avoid sin. We won't always, certainly not. But he is saying it is never hopeless because your shame is gone, I will give you freedom to overcome temptation. There's always a way out. God always provides the means to flee from sin. The problem is we don't flee from sin. We snuggle up to it. We get as close as we can without doing anything wrong. It's fine. We're just friends at work. There's nothing's happening. Just what? You know, she just gets me. Right? We'll just chat on the face machine. Or the what is it? The Insta Twitter? I don't know what it is. It's not a big deal. All of a sudden, something's going on inside. Right? What did one guy say to I forget what it, I wish I could remember who it was. He said, oh, I know who it was, but you don't know. His name's Steve. No, it is. It's Steve. You see, you know something's going wrong when you're going to church and you're dressing that they might notice you. That's guys and girls. I'm not picking on women. Okay, something's going on. He said, well, I'm not having an affair. Um, you're snuggling up. You're setting your heart. You're not walking as light saying, you know what? I am my wife's. I am my husband's. I want to have my heart and my, I want to communicate to the world around me that my heart is affixed to this one as firmly as Jesus is affixed 
to me. My marriage is bigger than my satisfaction. My marriage tells the world how much Jesus loves me. And I want my actions and my conversations and even the dwellings of my heart and mind to communicate to everyone around me, I love this one because Christ loves me. Flee it. Run away from it. I don't want to be rude. Be rude. Verse 11 of Ephesians chapter 5. Take no part in unfruitful works of darkness. Instead, expose them. This is a very simple, complicated, I mean, very simple way to overcome these sorts of things. When things are going on, they're going to lead you into sin. Walk away and call it out. You're hanging out with your friends and something's going down that's not right. Here, I'll give you the magic words. You ready, guys? Dude, that's not right. That's not us. And start with dude. It makes you seem very familiar and approachable. Dude, that's not us. See, I didn't say, oh, dude, you're naughty. No, that's not who we are anymore. No, we, that, was old, that was us before. That's not right. Well, what if I offend them? I don't, I don't want to make it weird and awkward. Let me just, uh, just dispel the myth. Okay, it's going to be weird and awkward. I mean, really, much worse than you could imagine. They will probably not talk to you for a while, call you some kind of goody-two-shoes, holy roller. You're not. We all know it. Proverbs says this, the fear of man lays a snare. Whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. So are you worried about what your buddy's going to say? Really? That's not, that's not a buddy, for one thing. Every now and then, the body of Christ, that's not us anymore. Okay, no, I get it. I get it. I'm not judging. That's not, I'm just saying that's not us anymore. That's not how we roll anymore. That was an old way. We need to have boldness to say, you know, we've got to help each other out because we're all facing temptation all the time, and it's okay every now and then to say, you know what, hey, that's not what we do. One other thing to point out before we move to the last section here is in Matthew 5, 13 and 14. This is what Jesus says. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill. It cannot be hidden. People don't put a lamp under a basket, but they put it on a stand. And it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others. What good is salt if it's lost its saltiness? Why do people eat boiled eggs? I love boiled eggs. Why do people eat boiled eggs? It is a salt delivery system. And some of you, you're taking the yolks out for the cholesterol? I mean, I, I don't get it. Dude, that's, not, that, that's the old us, guys. I'm sorry. Probably inappropriate. Um, salt, wait, the Bible calls, I, I don't know how to say this in a way that's polite. The Bible says there should be a distinct contrast to how we live in the world around us. There should be a noticeable difference. Now, this is how we've gotten this wrong in years past. We decided we wanted to be distinct from our culture in order to show them how bad they were. That's not what it's saying here. What it's saying here is we want to show the world around us what true joy and happiness looks like. It's not found in this world. It's found in Jesus. Nothing is worse than a bunch of Christians who are so good and so miserable. I mean, you haven't found anything special. 
You've just found a new way to be miserable. The Bible is calling us here to find so much joy and satisfaction in God. We live differently that the world might look and say, hey, wait, that, that looks interesting. You have found joy and satisfaction in a world where I've tried everything and nothing's paid off. We are called here to live as salt and light in the world around us that they might look at our life and not think we're some kind of goody-two-shoes. They should know the opposite if they know us very well. But they might decide you're living differently because you found joy somewhere other than this world. It is in Christ. There should be a distinct difference in our lives and the world around us because our shame is gone. All right. Walk in the light because you love God and because your shame is gone. Last one. Walk in the light because you enjoy Jesus. Relationships flourish in joy, not in obligation. Relationships flourish in joy, not in obligation. I don't know. Anybody have a hobby they enjoy? Uh, the Masters is on this weekend, so we'll pick on golfers. No golfers. Ah, I've got to go golfing again. Got to put my time in on the course. Otherwise, you know, uh, trudging out. Ugh, hitting the ball, spending time with friends, enjoying the fresh air. See, why, why would somebody do that? Some of you are saying, we have no idea why people do that. <laughs> it's because you enjoy it. Hobbies, the hobbies we enjoy flourish because we enjoy them. We enjoy doing them. We don't need a, 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 somebody to tell us to do them. We do them because we enjoy them. And relationships flourish in the same way. Our, our marriages flourish when they have joy in them, and our relationships with our children flourish when they have joy in them. Nobody wants to be married to a checklist. Nobody wants their relationships defined by a checklist. And what the Bible is calling us to here is to live in light, not because Jesus wants us to fill out a punch card. He says, I want you to live in the light because you enjoy me and you enjoy life with me. I want you to engage in light walking because it's the place where you find joy in me. Verse 13, when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. You can see it. Jesus said this in John chapter 8 beginning in verse 12. He said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He is saying this, if you walk with me, you will have my light on you. And that which is lighted, excuse me, that which is lighted is visible. Here's another way of saying it is this. The light of Christ is transformative. When Christ's light and his life shines on our heart and our lives, it changes who we are. Christ is saying, you spend time with me, you walk in me and with me in light, your heart and your mind and your life over time is going to experience a transformation. This is what the Bible says elsewhere in Colossians chapter 1. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He's taken us from darkness into light and now he's transforming us. The effect of Christ's light on our life is will we, be, we will be changed over the course of that. Like when we're illuminated by Christ, we are transformed. In the movie, uh, The Lord of the Rings, the second one, yep, the second one, there's a big battle at the end. It's called the Battle of Helm's Deep. And the battle's not going very well. Mostly the good guys are losing. Bad guys are winning, and the bad guys vastly outnumber the good guys. 
But Gandalf the Grey, maybe he was the white by then, I don't know, a guy named Gandalf, he had told them when he had left earlier, he said, listen, I'm going, I'm going to come back. Look for me on the eastern horizon at the light of day. And the battle's going worse, and then it's getting worse, and then it's getting even more worse. And finally, the king and his other guys, I know the specifics are daunting, they ride out and what they say, you know what, we're all going to die. Let's ride out and die awesome. Let's ride out and die fighting. So they ride out to die in a blaze of glory. Right then, over the eastern horizon, who shows up? Gandalf with his staff and his light and reinforcements. Now, all of a sudden, in that moment, everything's changed. Now, the enemy is vastly outnumbered. And it's, and it's a route. There's not even a close victory. You sort of wonder why Gandalf didn't get there earlier, actually, when you're watching the movie. But see, the light has changed everything. Gandalf shows up, and now there's no power in the enemy. The light has changed everything. The whole battle has changed because of the light of the Savior has shown up. And this is what Jesus is saying. saying, my light shines on your life. It brings into light all that you might assume is dark. I'm going to change it all. The landscape of your whole life will change. Look at verse 14 of Ephesians 5, the first part of, a, of verse 14, not the second part. It says this, Anything that becomes visible is light. He's saying, bring your dark deeds out into the light. Let me see them. Let them be exposed. I will transform the darkness of your life into light. This is why James tells us in James chapter 5, confess your sins to one another. He's calling us as believers to drag out the stuff of the darkness, that the light might shine on it, that he might transform us and change the dark things in our life into bright things. And he finishes in Ephesians 5.14 with this, Awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead. Christ will shine on you. This reminds us of the disciples falling asleep the night before Jesus died on the cross. He kept coming back to them. Are you still sleeping? I'm providing you salvation and you're napping through it. He says, wake up. Don't live as those who are dead. Don't live as those who are in darkness. Walk in my warmth. Walk in my light. There's more joy in the light of Christ than will ever be found in the things of this world. Walk in the light. All right, let me sum this up in a couple of ways just to make sure if I missed the sum of you in terms of offending you. I want to make sure to catch you before I get to the end. I don't know how to, how to say this nicely. Well, other than to tell you the truth, this is a call to personal holiness. This is the Bible telling us, I pray that you do not continue in your sin. Now, primarily the call here for Ephesians chapter 5 is to walk away from sins of sexual immorality and sins of idolatry. And now what's funny is changed in our culture. 50 years ago, I wouldn't even say the word sex in church. I wasn't alive 50 years ago. That's probably why. You know what I mean? Couldn't even say the word. Oh, nowadays we don't mind. But don't talk about my money. That's my business. Everything, so I can bring up two sins, the sins of sexuality and the sins of greediness and idolatry, and all of us are in the same boat. Talk about that sex thing all you want. Do not talk about my money. That's mine. So I won't. You can read the Bible on your own. But a couple of things here to note. This is a call to personal holiness to evaluate as is not just my body, is my heart and mind dedicated to my spouse? In my singleness, is my heart and mind dedicated to my Savior? Or do I allow my heart 
the vision of my eyes and the imagination of my mind to go places that are dark. And the Bible says, there is an escape. Seek the Lord and walk in his warmth. There's no shame by God's grace, but walk from that in the light. In looking at our stuff, it says, do you trust in God or do you trust in your stuff? Do you find your significance? Your significance in God or in your stuff. If you lost everything tomorrow, would it be a bad day? Probably. Would it ruin you? If it would ruin you, we need to think, Lord, what do we need to do? You're going to lose it all anyway at one point. We need to understand it all belongs to the Lord. Okay, a couple of things to point out. Just to, like I said, just make sure we offend everyone equally. Ready? And then we'll be done. Romans 6, 1 says this. If I can find it, excuse me. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. One translation, God forbid. How can we who have died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we might walk in the newness of life. First point. There is not a moral equivalency between sinning and receiving grace and being obedient. Okay, this is a hard one to get our head around. There is not a moral equivalency between, listen, yeah, I blew it. I'm, I'm a, I, I got this little pet sin. It's not that bad. Nobody's dying. Right? Nobody's dying. It's privacy in my own home. And you know what? I got the grace of Christ, so I'm fine. You get another, another person saying, no, I'm going to seek to live in obedience by God's grace and in his strength. There's not a moral equivalency between those two. You say, well, is the Christian who's caught up in sin and refuses, are they not going to get to heaven? You know, that's between them and, and the Lord. But we can't say living an obedient life is the same as living a sin life trusting in the grace of God. They are not the same. Do, we understand, do you understand what I'm saying? No, they're not the same. God is calling us by his grace to live a life of, I know this word is not, kids don't like it and grown-ups don't like it either. Obedience. What's the definition of obedience? Doing stuff you don't want to do and not doing stuff you do want to do. I tell my children this all the time. You can ask them. Don't bother them. It's not obedience when I ask you to do something you already want to do. That's me telling you to do something you want to do. Obedience is me saying, I want God's ways, not my ways. To walk in the light means to walk in obedience. And although we rest in the grace of Christ, to sin is not the moral equivalence of obedience. We can't call those things the same thing. Second point, God's righteous calling on our life, his calling for us to live in holiness, dedicated to him and how we live in relationship and with our stuff, is not because he is dull and boring and just wants to make us have a bad day. It's for our good and for our flourishing. And we know this, but we are easily deceived. He's calling us into obedience because it is for our best it's our best good. It's the best way to live. It may not give us everything we want in the moment, but it's for our flourishing and for his glory. 
The passage in Ephesians 5 calls us to walk in the light, but is not assuming that we will be perfect. I always say this, the Bible tells us not to sin. Why? Because it assumes we are. I mean, if the church in Ephesus didn't have a sex problem and a money problem, would he write that in there? He wouldn't need to. I would write you about sex and money, but I mean, you're pretty much nailing it, so you're good. But he didn't. So the assumption here, some of us, because we're built or we grew up in a church and we are geared towards living a life of shame and guilt, you're already going, oh, I'm ruined. The assumption here is this is a struggle. This is a tension. This passage isn't written that we might be perfect in our behavior, but it's written that we might be drawn to seeking the Lord in how we live. Glorifying him with our obedience, and when we blow it, which we will, resting in his grace. This written is not Written, the passage is not written that we might be perfect. It assumes that we are going to struggle significantly. I've already mentioned this, so I'll just mention it one more time. There should be a discernible difference between the world and Christians. There should be a discernible difference between how the world around us lives and how Christians live, and one of the key marks should be our joy. We have found a way to walk in the light of Christ, and our life of obedience should be marked with joy and gladness, not long faces and sadness all the time. Finally, and I'll close with this, what's the key to overcoming sin? Is that a fair question? What's the key to overcoming sin? You're not going to like my answer, but it's the Bible's answer, so are you ready? Love God more than your sin? I mean, it sounds lame, doesn't it? Now that I say it, it sounds kind of lame. Well, don't I need an accountability group? I don't know, Maybe. But you can lie to an accountability group. Come on, who's done it? No, don't raise your hand. Accountability group, I mean, that can, if you love God more than your sin, an accountability can group can be helpful. If you love your sin more than God, an accountability group is just a way for you to take your sin and share it with others. As long as our sin is more appealing than God is, we're not going to overcome it. Overcoming sin is a matter of saying, I need to love God more than my sin. And so what do we need to say about some of our sin? I, I, I don't love God more than that. I actually like my sin better. I like my stuff better. I, anyone? What do we call that when we, say, when we finally tell the truth? It's called repentance. And God is glorified and we finally say, you know what? God, I don't have this right. I'm so, I'm so far off base here, I can't, even see, I can't even see true north. God, I don't even know what to do here. I need you to help me figure this out. I trust that you're going to change my life. The rhythm in a Christian life is learning to love God more by every day having a rhythm of repentance and faith. Saying, God, I'm not getting it right. I want to. I trust that you will help transform my heart. Walk in the light because you love God. Because your shame is gone, because you enjoy Jesus.